This week on Go and Make, we're talking to Ed Hogan from Kenrick Glennon Seminary. He's the academic dean. He's a theologian for the Archdiocese of St. Louis. And really, he's just someone I want to be when I grow up. He's wise. He's discerning. He's insightful. And we're talking about the synod on synodality that's going on in Rome. But really, we're talking about how do we listen? That's what the synod is really all about. How do we listen to other people, dialogue with them as we try to journey together towards Christ and towards truth? So this is a great conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. And as always, of course, we want you to like and subscribe to Go and Make. We want you to share it with other people in your parish. And uh, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, Help us get our uh, podcast out there for other people so they can be equipped for mission too. And a great way to do that is if you leave a review. So go ahead and do that on on uh, iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And without anything more, let's get to this week's episode. Welcome to Go and Make from the Archdiocese of St. Louis, equipping you to live the great commission of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. All right, welcome back to the next episode of Go and Make. We uh, have a great episode today. We're really excited to talk to Dr. Ed Hogan, who is the academic dean at Kenrick Glennon Seminary. Welcome to the show. Brian, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, really fun. And today's topic is one is one of those lightning rods in the church, but not really at all, actually. We want to talk a little bit about the synod on synodality that's going on in Rome, uh, but really less about what's going on in Rome and more about the reasons why this synod is happening and, and really what the, the church is calling us to in terms of how we see ourselves as a church and how we engage the world as a church. So I guess my first question for you uh, would be, what the heck is a synod anyway? So I, you know, I was talking about this with some friends, my father-in-law, some other people, and they said, I don't know what a synod is, or I don't know what I don't know what you're talking about, which is great because sometimes I think in the church we like overanalyze these things. We think it's everywhere. And, and really for a lot of Catholics, Maybe it doesn't move the needle or radar. So what is a synod and why should people care about it? Sure. So it's a great question, uh, Brian. I have no idea what a synod is. No, I'm <laughs> totally kidding. Yeah, right. Uh, if, you, if you think if about... If you don't know, we're in trouble. Right. You know a lot of things. Um, just think about who is at the synod. So what's the population that's there? And at a council, everybody's there. At a synod, you just have a smaller group of experts who are invited to reflect on something. And a council being like Vatican II or Trent sure. or... Yep. All those different councils, right? So Jerusalem, look at, the first one, right? right. You know, yeah. So look at those great pictures. The Jerusalem conference, everybody came together. Vatican II, the great pictures that we see of that. It's all the bishops gathered together. Well, all the bishops aren't there, right? Bishop Barron wrote a nice letter when he left, saying, "Hey, I'm one of the five elected representatives to go representing our bishops' conference, right? Or however many there are." So that's the thing: is it's a select group of people and a representative group of people who come to talk and focus on something together. So you'll see, uh, going all the way back to uh, Familiaris Consortio by John Paul II, just in my own memory, it's a post-synodal apostolic exhortation. So after all these people get together, then the Pope has something to say about it. So a synod doesn't have decision-making power. The Pope receives their input, and then he does something with it. Or if you think about, uh, I think, Verbum Domini by Pope Benedict XVI was a post-synodal apostolic exhortation on the Word of God, right? He gathered people to talk about this and then reflected on it and took it into his own heart as the Pope and then had something to say to the Church about it. Yeah, it helps us kind of discern 
what all these voices are hearing and saying. And then the Pope takes kind of as the chief discerning officer of the of of the church in many ways, takes what he's heard and and prays with it and and puts out this kind of guidance and really challenge for the church to maybe uh think about things differently. And my, you know, the one I think of in, in my lifetime here is uh the joy of the gospel is a post synodal apostolic exhortation. And I love that one too because I, I love that it shows a lot of continuity in the church and our moment of evangelization we're in right now. Because John Paul II really talked about the new evangelization as papacy. His, his dream was to live the vision of the Second Vatican Council and really unpack that all throughout his papacy. And I think if you read his papacy through that lens, through the lens of Vatican II, you really see a lot of what he was trying to do. And it took him, I mean, he was Pope for a long time, and it took him a long time to get there. And he talked about it a lot. So then Pope Benedict becomes Pope, and he takes up the mantle of the new evangelization and establishes a commission for the new evangelization and calls a synod on the new evangelization. Then he retired in the middle of it, like wild. You can't, can't imagine him just deciding to, to resign in the middle of it, but he does. And Pope Francis takes over, finishes the synod, and then writes the, the post-synodal apostolic exhortation, the joy of the gospel, which has really, I think, given us a lot of uh, language that we use today in terms of evangelization. It's given us a lot of, of insight in terms of uh, understanding the church and the world and where we are, and a lot of challenge for the church. Um, and, and so it's really... I always describe the joy of the gospel. I think in the United States, the joy of the gospel and like forming intentional disciples coming out at the same time, like helped us form a new imagination for what evangelization can be. And that's kind of what synods do. They take where we are and say, how is the church called to be more fully herself right now? And I think that's very much characteristic of Pope Francis's papacy. He listens to where we are right now. And when you think about it, He's not a philosopher like John Paul II. He's not a theologian like Benedict. Yeah, he's easier to read. No. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. He's a spiritual director, and yeah. a spiritual director yeah. takes where you are and says, I think this is the next step for you. And I think that's always and, and very consciously been his modality. I just had a thought about, you know, uh, when Bishop Barron left, he said, uh, people are asking me, what is this going to be like? And he said, well, if it's like my experience of previous synods, We'll be working from 7 in the morning till about 8.30 at night, and the Pope actually will have very little to say because he's just going to listen to us because that's why he's gathering this group of people, or at least that's what he did the last time. And so I think about that even when you're in the decision-making seat. There's this tremendous value to listening and gathering a group of people to talk through something together before you have something to say. And then the spiritual momentum of the listening carries through into the things that you have to say. So, yeah, well, I don't know if you've ever worked with a group trying to determine a new mission statement or mission vision values for an organization. And when you get those leaders in the room, parish councils do this all the time. When you get the leaders in the room to talk about it, the wrestling and the conversations that happen are actually more fruitful than the words that come out at the end. Now, the words that come out at the end reflect that wrestling and they can be kind of a guidepost for us to look at and, and check ourselves against as far as what we're trying to do. But the relationships and the bond and the trust and the understanding that comes from the conversation. So we may not even go with a certain idea, but I understand why you think that idea is important. I understand where you're coming from and help me understand you better and your heart better. And that's, I think, kind of what the Senate can be for us nowadays, too. Yeah, I think that's right. Just three experiences come to mind. We did this at the seminary about 10 years ago. We needed to come up with a new mission statement or vision statement. And we just sat around and, and we batted it batted it around for a while as a group. And yeah, we came out with a statement, and it's a great statement, but the way it fashioned relationships behind the scenes 
was just as important as the statement itself. It gave us a kind of relational momentum that carried us into the mission. Or I think of the guys who graduated from the seminary just last year, and we had a course where they would lead a discussion for about 45 minutes, and then I would give them some pointers. And they, they wouldn't want to make any conclusions before they had talked to one another. And when they talked to one another, they had real disagreements but then after that, they were able to say much deeper things because they had listened to one another. And just yesterday in class, at some point came up in Trinitarian class, and I just said, stop, let's all just look at this together. Who's got a thought about how to break open this problem? And the guys just listened to one another and built on one another for a few minutes. And I said, hey, you guys, this is how it works when you're a pastor. You're going to want to gather people together, and you'll come up with something much deeper because you've listened to one another in the end. So I think there's tremendous value to that process. And we've had, so we've had, like you said, we've had synods on various topics along the way. Um, really, since the Second Vatican Council, been, there's been a synod probably every three years or so in the church on a various topic. There was one on, on young people. There was one on the new evangelization. There was one on the Word of God. There's been all these different things we're, we're breaking open. This one's interesting because it's um, it's a synod on synods, <laughs> or it's a synod on synodality, right? The idea of being a listening church, the idea of being kind of in relationship. And I think for us, as I look at that in the Archdiocese of St. Louis, I think about kind of our evangelization roadmap, our paradigm of what we're trying to do. We talk about what's the method of evangelization. We talk about accompaniment and discipleship, right? Going to go out and be with people. Uh, in their mess sometimes, go out and be with people, build human relationships, call them to meet Christ in a profound way, which whether it's your first time or your hundredth time requires conversion in your heart, and then walking with them relationally to unpack the faith and grow in the faith that way too. So really, I hear a synod on listening or a synod on, on synodality and how we are as a church, and I think that's that's great. That's right where we are. Yeah, I think we, we run into that problem in the United States because we think synod on synodality. Let's have a synod on synods on synodality, and we kind of get wrapped up in a the coffee theory. table book about coffee tables that you can turn <laughs> into a coffee table if no, you're a Seinfeld fan, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But I think this translation that you've offered, a synod on listening, and what is the role of listening in the church? That, yeah, hey, decisions need to be made, right? And we're not sacrificing that in any way to say, part of the process of making good decisions and building relations through those decisions is listening along the way. So, and this is actually a great topic in theological studies. What exactly is the census fidelium? And how does it function as a source in theology? So in theology class, uh, just in the last three weeks, the guys were reading St. Basil on the Holy Spirit, in which he mounts the full case that the Spirit is divine. And without St. Basil's work on the Holy Spirit, we probably wouldn't have had that definition. And one of the things he says in there is, well, the churches who were faithful, who didn't give up the faith, used this particular form of prayer. And so that is an argument from the census fidelium. He's listening to not just, he's not giving a veto power to everyone. He's not making it a matter of a vote. He's saying... Not simple majority either, right? It, it's yeah. not. It's who has been faithful, and that has a particular weight to it. So Because there was a time in the church where, you know, the Arian heresies and things, there was a time when there was probably a majority of bishops who were actually heretics in different ways too. And uh, so it's not simple majority, but it's really the discernment with the Spirit, well, with with the Pope as the head of that too, 
kind of guarding the doctrine of faith, but there's really nothing lost in the conversation that goes along with trying to define these things. And I think, I think that makes people uncomfortable sometimes um, because in order to clearly define something, you have to know what the boundaries of it are. Uh, John Henry Newman has a great analogy where he talks about a river, right? When a river overruns its, its bounds, it really loses a lot of its power. But the walls of the river are what make it powerful, and it's what makes it a river and not a lake. So it's, it's, it's the channels and the boundaries which give it power and definition. I think that's really a great image for us in this kind of discernment process of, of what the church is trying to lead us to. Yeah, I think, and that's where people misunderstand, <clears throat> excuse me, what was going on in the background of Humanae Vitae. Hey, this group of experts was gathered together and they voted in a particular direction and the Pope didn't follow their vote. But wait, it was never a voting committee. It was an advisory committee and he listened and, and he disagreed in the end with what a lot of the folks thought. But the listening informed how he articulated his case, right? And the theology of the body really grows out of that. But John Paul II wants to deepen people's response to that. And where did he learn things like that? By gathering with young people and listening to their struggles and fashioning a response to that. So again, somebody's in the decision-making seat in the end. That's the nature of the church. But there's a listening process that really informs the decisions which are made. Well, and I think that's a really important thing you just said there, too, in that we're not trying to dismantle a hierarchical church. Like, that's the nature of the church that Christ gave us, and it's not a bad thing. Um, so when I think we better understand what the church is and who the church is. It gives us, again, it gives us the freedom to live within those boundaries, that we can have creativity and ideas, uh, but there's a real spiritual authority that comes with that headship, too, and it happens in the Vatican with the Pope, but it also happens at your own local parish, which is why when you're trying to minister and evangelize and do things in your parish, you actually want the blessing of your pastor, because with the blessing of your pastor comes an extra outpouring of the Holy Spirit in that, too. Yeah, and I've experienced that in different ways. You know, a funny story, I was on a church committee once, and we were making some decision in the parish, and the pastor said, okay, and now we'll have a vote, and I'll vote just like everyone else. And when it came to my turn, I said, well, well, I'll vote on the matter, but I don't think that's how this works, Father. I think we'll say what we're thinking, and then you're going to make a decision because you're in the chair of authority. And you know what? In this case, I think you and I disagree, but I'm okay with that. I just want you to hear me and really listen to me. And if you do, I'm okay with wherever you decide this to go. <clears throat> what you're deciding in the end isn't immoral. It's different from what I wanted, and, and that's okay. So we need to get comfortable in that space of, yeah, there is a spiritual authority, and there is a headship, and you can have that and have listening at the same time. And I think there's a, an important distinction to make there, too, sometimes between hey, what is a matter of, of obedience and faith and morals, and sometimes a matter of personal preference in the way I do things. And I think, you know, we learn a lot about that in marriage, I think, sometimes too. And then, you know, we can have disagreements about how we're going to manage the household or whatever, but at the end of the day, we have to get on board with the, the, the decision that's best for our family. And uh, I, think, I think marriage in general is a great model for, for synodality in a lot of ways in that, um, you know, in the way St. Paul talks about in Scripture, husbands and wives and relationship, it's it's subservient to one another for the common good. And I think that if we approach conversations in, in the Senate and listening with others like that, uh, I think that's really important. But let's maybe go away from the global uh, Senate idea and just talk about what does that mean in terms of evangelization in day-to-day -day life. One of the things 
um, that the global synod has, I think, heightened awareness of is how does the church reach out to marginalized groups or people in my life who are marginalized and feel away from the church? And that can be divorced and remarried. That can be uh, the LGBTQ spectrum and, and what's going on with those people and how they feel maybe alienated by the church. So how do I, as a Catholic parishioner, looking to evangelize, how do I understand those margins better? And what does the idea of listening have to teach me about that? Yeah, so I would start with one thing and then follow up with another. And the first is just asking questions is really important. So I was having a conversation with a friend over the weekend, uh, and we just went for a long walk together. And I went in and said, I have seven questions for you. (laughs) And as we walked through those questions, he was able to unpack his heart and what it was that he was trying to decide. And we didn't come to a decision for him, but he came to some clarity about what was going on in his heart and how he was going to decide certain things. And I think that was really important. I had a conversation with somebody uh, just late last week, and I, I said at the end of the conversation, I just have, and we've been talking for an hour, and I said, I just have one question. Tell me about your tattoos, right? Because I mean, he what a great it, question. Right. I love it, yeah. And he just unpacked more of his heart and how it is that he had received something and he was trying to make the gospel clear to others. And it was a beautiful thing for me just to open the door of how is God trying to work through you? So I think on the one hand, we have to get better at asking questions and not just telling people what they should think or do. We've got to let them unpack how God is working through their heart. And as we get better at asking questions, we start to notice the things that weren't said. And I know that uh, over the weekend, the pivotal point in the conversation was when my friend had responded to one question, but something opened up to me that he wasn't considering. And I needed to lean in there with him. And and he just said, I've never really thought of that before. And that was the key moment. Something broke open. So that's the follow-up thing is sometimes when you're asking questions and you're asking questions of the people who are around you, you realize that certain people aren't there. And you need to go find them and create an occasion to ask them, hey, what's your story? I noticed you didn't say this. I, I noticed you weren't at this meeting and I want to receive more from you. I think you have something to offer here, and I want to hear what that is. So finding the marginalized means seeing who's not there and going out to find them and telling them, I think you have something to offer. And I think that in terms of evangelization sometimes too, we have this idea that apologetics is where evangelization starts and stops. And I think sometimes that actually holds us back in evangelization as well, because there is a right answer. We want to make sure everyone knows it. And and there's a lot of truth out there that people don't know that we need to help them unpack and figure it out. But, you know, that people don't care what you know until they know that you care, right? Like every kindergarten teacher's favorite phrase, I think, you know, and it can be sound a little sentimental, but it really is very true. And I think that the more we can get away from an apologetics-based approach for this type of evangelization. Now, again, there's different moments that require different approaches, and discerning what that is can be done by listening, actually, if you believe it or not, and knowing what someone needs. If someone has just an intellectual argument and that's where they're at, well, then great. Let's give them the answers, and we can go back and forth and have a, a debate or a dialogue or whatever you want to call it. But really, this approach of understanding the deeper wound or, or like you said, what's missing in that conversation I think is really important. A good a good friend of mine, we have this group text that goes on regularly and and I learned something from her and she just always says, say more. So someone else like make a statement, and, you know, maybe even sometimes trying to get a response or or whatever out of the group. And 
and she's very wise. She says, say more. And then it provides a lot more clarity as to where someone's coming from. And I've, I've kind of brought that into my day-to-day life. I'm like, okay, well, I don't need to respond yet. Like you actually probably have more to say and I need to care about it too. Yeah. I love what you're saying there about the balance of apologetics and listening. There are answers and they have a role to play and we're never going to sacrifice those. We worked hard to get to those answers, right? But sometimes a person just needs to unpack their story a little bit. Uh, I had an experience of this just the other day in class. Guys ask questions all the time and what they want or think they want is the immediate answer. And what I want to teach them, if I just, I can be tempted to think, if I just say these words, they have been taught. But even teaching a master's level class, I need to teach them how to follow up on their own questions, how to ask questions, how to have an idea that maybe is only halfway to the answer, but to build on it and then to keep leaning into it. So I need to teach them how to ask questions how to ask better questions, and eventually how to come up with their own answers. And I'm not really teaching them if I'm just giving them answers, right? I need to teach them the dynamic of question and answer. So I I had a a friend call me who's involved in formation on the East Coast, and he said, I'm giving a talk on the difference between self-possession and self-gift, and I'm not really sure what self-possession is and how it's different from self-knowledge. It's going to be a hard talk to give. You know? it's, it was tough. It was <laughs> yeah, tough. Right, yeah. So when he, when he called, I said, well, listen, I, I'm not playing games with you. I, I have an answer for you. But tell me, how do you conceive of the difference between self-knowledge and self-possession? And he started to lay out an answer that was most of the way there. And I said, that's very beautiful. Let me just add one or two points. And then let me give you... 10 topics on which you could develop this. What's the difference between self-possession, between, sorry, self-knowledge and self-possession when it comes to negative self-talk, when it comes to wanting to please others? And it just all fell into place because I posed to him the right questions. And when he started to answer his own question, he owned it in a new way. So the seminarians heard this uh, at the start of the year in a mini symposium on Veritati's Splendor, Pope John Paul II's great encyclical on moral truth. And he had a great priest there who does tremendous things theologically and pastorally. And he said, listen, when someone comes up and asks you, why does the church say X? On the one hand, you need to have an answer ready. On the other hand, your best response will be probably, well, I have an answer to that, but can you just tell me why is that really important to you? I'd like to hear more about that. Because what they need to do is have someone receive their story. And when someone receives their story, then they're ready for the answer. Sherry Waddell has the great line in Forming Intentional Disciples, never accept a label in place of a story. And I think, again, if there's like a, a like a, just a one-liner you need in your back pocket for evangelization, that's it. I remember during a focus training as a missionary, you know, 15 years ago, uh, we had an apologist in who was doing some of the apologetic stuff, and he talked about someone coming up to him on a church parking lot and saying, you Catholics, you terrible people, and this, this, and this, you know. And he took it for a while, and he just he kind of had this you know moment of prayer to the Holy Spirit, said, what do I say next? You know, This is an apologist who's trained to dispute everything they said, and he said, I'm sorry for however the church hurt you. Like I don't know what it was, but I'm sorry for how the church has failed you and hurt you. 
And this person just broke down into tears and outlined all the wounds they have from their childhood of the church and an abusive father and all these things. It was going back a layer and not taking the argument, you know, the way it was presented, but really trying to understand the root of where those things might come from. And I, I thought that was really just a beautiful story because I think it it helps us understand there's always more than we see on the surface level with this, with the different questions people have or, or what's going on in someone's life. They're, they're masking something that's probably deeper. Yeah, and, and so and to come back to the theme we've been talking about, it doesn't mean the answers aren't important. It doesn't mean we won't give the answers at some point. But to use Jesus's parable, the ground has to be prepared to receive that. And when the ground isn't prepared, the seed just bounces off the soil. Right, so we need to spend a little time. We're Catholics; we do the both and thing. Right, right. So the listening and the answering, the listening and the proclaiming, the listening and the deciding doctrines, those go together. But our first step is often just to receive someone's story and to ask this question: "Say more. Tell me about that." So these two most powerful words in our arsenal: "Say more" and "Tell me." And then just listen, and you'll see where to go next, right? Of the hundred things that I might say in response, where is it that I want to say something? The guys were learning this lesson just yesterday in Trinity class. There's a great textbook on St. Augustine's Trinitarian theology, and it lays out a problem. And then the author says, at this point, Augustine intervenes. Why? That's a great theological skill. Let me just intervene here. And let me suggest a different alternative here. But that's a great pastoral skill as well. So I love how Augustine put the theological and the pastoral together. Wait, uh, right here, I want to ask a question. And as you unpack that, I want to propose another way to think about it. And people receive that really differently. And there, we need to trust in the process, that Jesus is at work in the midst of it. And the conversion may not happen in five minutes. But if we say truthful things with love... They'll sink in over time. And we need to trust him to do the work. Well, and it's, it occurs to me, we had this whole conversation just now is when we mentioned the name of Jesus first. So forgive us, Lord, for that. Um, but, well, I mean, you want to talk about a model for, for doing this. It's Jesus. I mean, this is how he operated his entire ministry. It's actually the principle of the incarnation, that he became one of us so we might become like him. Yeah, he wasn't afraid to go out there. Yeah. Right? And that's one of those things where often we, we see... Mm, an opposition, right? Jesus is the truth in the flesh. Yet he goes out to the messiness of sinners. And it's a good thing he did, because otherwise we wouldn't be saved. He didn't just wait back until they were pure. Well, can we do that? Can we get better at that? Never compromising the truth, but always bringing it out to where people are. Right. I, my favorite... Uh story in the Gospels, maybe, is uh, the road to Emmaus. And so I find a way to make that like the central point of any, you know, evangelization discussion or framework all the time, because he walks on the road with them in the wrong direction away from Jerusalem. This is Resurrection Day, it's Easter Sunday, and the disciples are walking away. And he just comes up alongside and says, what things? You know, what are you, what are you talking about? Haven't you heard? Well, what things? And he asks these questions, and then he teaches, and then there's communion with him. He's there, you know, he's made known to them in the breaking of the bread and that communion immediately leads them to mission to go back to Jerusalem, to proclaim the risen Lord. And I think that, you know, as we talk about evangelization, as we talk about what we're trying to have people do in their parishes and their day-to-day life, a lot of times we want to start with the equipping, right? That's the discussion. That's the, the whole point of this podcast. We want to start with 
let me give you the skills you need to go out and proclaim the name of Jesus. But we have to be willing to start with the first part, too, of walking alongside people, of asking questions, of teaching the faith and the truth, being with Jesus in communion, and then we can go out and and proclaim his love and walk with people and, and help them ask those questions themselves, too. Yeah, and one, one of the dimensions of the Road to Emmaus story that I love and point out to seminarians sometimes is in the context of that listening, it's not a problem for there to be pushback, right? Because the first thing Jesus says after he receives their story is, oh, how foolish you are, how <laughs> slow right. of heart to believe. Yeah, that's, that's kind. But, yeah. but it works in that context. And so I found this, um, you know, just in the generations of students that I've taught, there was a time when they just wanted and needed affirmation. These are the great things I see in you. But there's a generation of young people now who also crave the pushback. And it's not, and, and you have to set up the context well. In the context of this affirmation, here's something I think you got wrong. But you know that that's coming from a place of care, right? And I found, at least uh, among the seminarians, they kind of crave that at times a clear no, a reasoned no, in the context of a greater yes, in the context of an affirmation of who they are, but for the sake of this greater yes. And they respond really well to that. And we see that in Jesus. But he set up the context. He walked alongside them. He listened to their story. He was leading them to something greater. And in the midst of that, there was a no. And it's parenting. Again, like, you know, marriage is the great like image of the church in a lot of ways, the domestic church, the family. Uh, we had a, a moment at the beginning of the school year where my kids, you know, we live across the street from church. There's really no reason for them ever to be tardy to school. We are right there. They're walking across the street. But just like everyone, you have your your days and your moments and your things that go on. And um, my kids are getting a little older. The oldest is eighth grade. And uh, my wife said, you know, high schools look at your tardies. And if you have a lot of tardies and you're irresponsible, they might not let you in. Well, the sixth grader heard this and was just like, in a heap in tears. Now, granted, my wife works at a high school and they're probably going to, he, he's probably going to get into the high school that she teaches at. But in that moment, I was like, my goodness, you really crushed their souls, you know, like as, as like the other side of the parenting paradigm. Right. And, uh, but I'll tell you what, man, those kids have taken on themselves this year that they have not been tardy one time since that conversation. So where I thought like, man, that was harsh. But she knew that that was what they needed in that moment. And I think as you parent and as you work with, with kids, there's moments where you need to be harsh and there's moments where you need to put your arm around them and encourage them and walk with them and 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 lift them up instead of push them in a different way. And I think when we think about evangelization, it's it's really the same thing. Oftentimes, it's it's discerning the moment and and what is called for in that moment and how you can be more present as Christ would be in that moment too. And there's no playbook for that. Right. There's no or there's no algorithm for that. It's just a human skill, right? So people want us to equip them. But actually, people know how to do these things in a lot of ways, right? Um, I'm always amazed when I, when I go out to a parish and, and consult with a pastor or someone, and they say, well, what do we need to do? And I'll say, well, how are you at leading your community in a hard conversation? And they might be a little shy, but the fact of the matter is they're really good at it, right? And it requires different things at different times, and you just measure that humanly. And you know what? It's okay to make a mistake and then apologize for it and bounce back from that. This has been one of the great tools of ministry for me. I'm not afraid to apologize. I'm not afraid to be specific with my apologies, right? Hey, that's okay. People make mistakes, and then you move on, and actually the relationship deepens when that happens. Hey, 
I pushed too hard this time. I should have been more gentle. I'm sorry about that. Hey, I was too easy this time, and I should have pushed you harder on this. Sorry about that. Um, so we see those things in teaching. We see those things in parenting. We see those things in coaching. At work. And we see those things in ministry yeah. as well. Right? We can be too hard, and we can be too soft. So study the great coaches, right? because I think they give us a great way to look at that, and then study Jesus. I never cease to be amazed at how on the mark Jesus was with where a person was and what their personality was and how he drew them a little bit deeper into relationship with him. And I think, oh, Lord, make me more like you. And I think that's a great prayer for all of us, to ask Jesus to become more like him in that push and pull of relationship. So as we wrap up our conversation here, we'll get a little bit practical for people, and then I can have a fun question for you. So I always want to leave people with practical tips. So I'll start with one practical tip. Find someone in the parish that you don't think cares about their faith. Maybe someone you have written off as you know, party crowd or closed off or whatever it might be. And just ask them this question or something similar. Where are you at in your faith walk right now? It's not judgmental. It's not saying I'm labeling you here, but like, where are you with God? And, and see where that question goes and, and listen and respond to all things we just talked about. Be a human, love them, and, and let the Holy Spirit open up room for further conversation as it goes. There's my one practical tip. What are you... Can I give two practical tips? Yeah, that'll round us out to a nice even three. Okay. You know? So my first practical tip is... Um, Whatever form of media that you're following about the synod that's causing you anxiety, stop. Just let it go. And whatever amount of energy you would have spent reading that, spend it on prayer for the synod, right? Because that kind of anxiety is not of the Lord. And the second is this, open yourself to the Spirit and follow the promptings of the Spirit in your parish when you see someone and part of your heart says, I would like to talk to that person. Go for it. And ask them a similar question to what Brian was asking there. Hey, how has God been working in your life this past week? And it may not be a comfortable conversation, and it may not go somewhere great the first time, and it might. But as you repeat that question over and over with different kinds of people, you'll be forming a community for whom this is ordinary language. What is God doing in your life right now? And we're so desperate to tell that story, to have that story be heard, uh, and, and to be pushing one another in that story. So that would be my practical tip. Don't be afraid to ask that question. Another question you can ask, too, is if you know someone who's out there trying to evangelize, ask them how it's going. So have you asked someone, how's your listening going? How's your, your questioning going? I think that's another thing we need to get better at is just the accountability with one another and listening to each other on our struggles and our joys and that kind of builds the culture of evangelization we're trying to build in our parishes. Okay, so this week on my Facebook page, and Facebook's always a wonderful place, right? I asked a question. I said, if you had to nominate a patron saint for synodality, who would it be and why? And there were some funny answers, of course, too, uh, about different people in the church. John the 23rd was a good one, right? He called kind of the Second Vatican Council and started us kind of on this path of renewal. Uh, someone said St. Dennis, the patron against frenzy, strife, and headaches because the media is making me anxious and giving me headaches about this and the, the takes are all over the place and maybe not always charitable. Um, how about St. Pierre Toussaint, who was a slave and took care and provided for the woman whose slave he had been? 
So this is a man who could forgive his enemies, love others, and work with anyone in the church. I thought that was was pretty cool. Uh, again, my father-in-law said the patron saint of folks like me that had to Google what synodality was and and see what it meant. And I'll give you one more uh, from the list before I get your answer here too. So uh, here is servant of God, Thomas Benjamin Couré, who was a lover of nature, social justice, enculturation, and interreligious dialogue. He participated in Vatican II as a conservative allied with Archbishop Lefebvre, and he's the perfect intercessor for those of us who don't fit neatly into boxes when it comes to the liberal, liberal or conservative paradigm. And that's from a great saint commentator, Meg Hunter-Kilmer, if you've ever seen her work around. She's always got a, a patron saint for everything. So, uh, yeah, it's not neat and cut and dry, and I really liked that one, too. So if you had a, a patron saint for synodality, who would it be? I would have uh, three patron saints for synodality. It's always got to be threes, right? Yeah. <laughs> the uh, first would be Saints Peter and St. Paul at the Jerusalem Council. Here They're coming together, and the great question is, do Gentiles have to be circumcised to follow Jesus? And, and this could have pulled the community apart. And what did they do? They got together, they prayed, they listened to one another, and they reached a decision. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to reach this conclusion. So I just love that process. The other would be St. Athanasius. Uh, of course, St. Athanasius was known as the great defender of the faith and the great champion of the homoousion, the consubstantiality of Jesus. So sorry to go a little geeky theological here, <laughs> that's but, right. but that's my thing. But the thing is, behind that, in the midst of the debate going back and forth, Athanasius was the champion of the homoousios, that Jesus is consubstantial with the Father. And then there was this great group of theologians known as the homoousions that, that were saying that Jesus is similar in substance to the Father, but not of the same substance. And Athanasius got together with them and listened to them and realized that although we're using different terms underneath, we're meaning very similar things. And so in a letter that he wrote to them, he called them brothers. And just that simple human personal, fraternal gesture brought about this unity that if he can listen to us, we can listen to him. And it was shortly after that that they all came to agreement. So I love that capacity to address one another as brothers and sisters in the midst of a disagreement and see what happens in the midst of that. So St. Athanasius would be my That's great. Mine was St. Paul initially. Uh, as well. Just I love, you know, anyone who's listened to this podcast so far knows I love First Thessalonians 2 8. And I quote it often, but being so affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves. And just that idea that we're gonna go out and share life with people and we're gonna share the truth with people. And to understand, you know, St. Paul was so good at knowing what people needed. Uh, when they needed milk, he gave them milk. And when they needed solid food, he gave them solid food. And I think that as we listen and hear the needs of the people that we're trying to serve, people we're trying to reach, uh, we need to take that approach as well and just really be of one heart and mind with them as, as best we can to be among them. So as we uh, go forth, would you lead us in a uh, closing prayer for, uh, for our synodality discussion you bet. today? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we gather in the name of your Son, Jesus, and so we know that he is present in our midst. Father, Jesus said that you would grant whatever we ask in his name. And so we ask you in the name of Jesus to send upon us and upon those gathered at the Synod the gift of the Holy Spirit. As we receive the gift of the Spirit, help us to listen to the word, Jesus, speaking to us in the depths of our hearts, speaking to us in the words of one another. 
Father, the Catechism says that amidst all the words of Scripture, Jesus is the one word spoken. Help us to listen to Jesus and to fashion our lives around listening, that all that we do and all that we say can make him more deeply present in the world. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. All right, go and make disciples. Amen.